Amen. We're going to read from the scriptures. We're reading from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through to 9. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through to 9. For those online, the words will come up on the screen. But as we have said before, and it's worth repeating, we encourage you to get your own copy of the Bible. Turn to the place. Follow the words. Listen to the word of God. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. For Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupience and covetousness which is idolatry for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them but now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy filthy communication out of your mouth lie not one to another seeing that you've put off the old man with his dates. Now this morning, we are continuing with our series of expository sermons in the book of Colossians. Now today my text is taken really from Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. It reads as follows. Listen again to the word of God. Colossians 3 and 5 Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupience, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now I've entitled this message, Victory Over Sin, Is It Real or Is It a Ruse? Literally I want to ask the question and answer it. Is it possible for a true believer in Christ so to live out his life on earth with a life of power and victory over remaining sin? Is such a life a glorious reality for the Christian in Christ? Or is it just a guilty ruse talked about by the preacher? Now, I believe this morning, according to the Bible, that it's possible for every Christian to so live out the Christian life, despite his circumstances, despite his situation, so to live to enjoy and know a life of power and victory over sin in this present evil world. Remember the statement in Matthew chapter 121, Thou shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Not in them, but from their sins. And we, we believe in this church. We preach from this pulpit. Jesus saves. What does he save us from? Jesus saves us from sin. What does that mean? Saves us from sin's penalty. 
saves us from sin's power. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Saves us from sin's pleasure. He takes the love of sinning out of our heart because he's given us a new heart. And also one day he'll save us from the very presence of sin. Now remember, when Paul wrote Colossians 3 verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication and cleanness and ordinate affection, evil concupience and covetousness, which is idolatry. Remember, he was dealing with heresy in Colossae. False teachers were teaching the people how to live a life of holiness. And they were teaching crazy stuff. They were, they were teaching a life of legalism, man-made rules. A, a life of asceticism, you have to abstain from certain things. A, a life of Gnosticism. Then Paul comes along and he writes to them and he teaches. And if we think of Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 and I, I can't keep going over it every week but if you think of what we talked about last Lord's Day in light of the blessedness of your union in Christ you must and you will set your mind on things above remember his argument if you are risen with Christ and you are then you will seek those things which are above the true Christian's heart and mind is in heavenly places in Christ. However, the true Christian's feet is still on the earth. It's on the earth is where he lives out his Christian life. And as he lives out his Christian life on earth, he's been directly being controlled by the laws of heaven. His, his new nature belongs to above. Yet he still has the old nature. See, see, the Apostle Paul is beginning to address now the problem of remaining sin in the life. Remember the context, Colossians 3 and 3, for ye are dead. The Christian is dead to sin, but sin is not dead to us. Yes, we've got a new nature. Yes, that new nature is desires of heaven. Yes, that new nature is subject to the laws of heaven. Yes, that new nature works out those present laws on earth. But remaining sin is still with us. It's a relic of the old life. It is what is left over when God has done a tremendous work of grace in our life. He's given us a new heart. God has given us a new spirit, a, a, a new love, a, a new bent towards holiness. Remember, you've got new life in Christ. You've got a changed life in Christ. Remember, you've got a hidden life in Christ that's secretive and yet secure. You've got a revealed life in Christ. Yet here's the paradox. Despite this new orientation, relics of the old life remain. We still feel an inclination to sin. We still have the ability to sin. We're still able to connect with this present evil world. We, we still have a battle with inward remaining sin. On the one hand, it's true. We are dead to sin. But remember what I said. Sin is not dead to us. Sin is still in us. No, we're, we're no longer living in sin. We're no longer controlled and dominated by sin. But sin is still in us. Do you know that every one of us this morning, 
Even the holiest of Christians, the moderator, the clerk of the presbytery, every one of us, ministers and elders, we all fight a daily battle with sin. Sins of the heart and mind, sins of the flesh. And even though we have been born again of the Holy Spirit, which is called regeneration, the new birth doesn't eradicate the old nature. Oh yes, the new nature is now dominant. Yes, we're now controlled by the Spirit of God. Yes, now by the grace of God, we've got the fruits of holiness. That, that fruit can be seen and manifest. But the striving and stirring of the old nature need to be dealt with. In the faith mission, we used to laugh, having a wee chat with one another. The corpse kicks. Think of that. The corpse kicks. In other words, we are dead to sin in Christ, but sin is not dead to us. And if you could grasp that paradox this morning, you have learned something that's very, very important. We're dead to sin in Christ, but sin is not dead to us as long as we live. There's a cartoon. A lady by the name of Mary Chambers was depicting two people that were studying the Bible. And they were dealing with Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. For you're dead and your life was hid with Christ and God. And one lady says to the other, but I don't know if I have died to sin. But it did feel kind of faint one day. See, the Bible says, for ye are dead. But I know that many of God's people don't feel dead to sin. They feel that sin is alive and well. So here's the question. How do I win against sin? How can I live a life of power and victory as I struggle with remaining sin. Remember, there's two commands here. Seek those things which are above, for Christ sitteth in the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And then here's the second command, verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Think of the word therefore. In light of your union with Christ, in light of the fact that you lived in him, died in him, arose in him, ascended in him, and, 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 and seated in him. Now in light of this, here's another duty and responsibility. And this time you're to mortify your members which are upon the earth. And that's why we're thinking this morning of how to know and enjoy a life of power and victory. A victory over sin is something that's real. I want to tell you it's not a ruse. It's something that's real. Three things this morning. Now, you have to be honest. I'd rather not be preaching this message. I'll be saying some things that may be uncomfortable to some, but I trust that you'll bear with us as we expound the word of God. First thing, recognize the enemy within. You see, every Christian, if you're a born-again believer here this morning, every Christian is in a lifelong battle with sin. 
There's not one Christian who doesn't struggle with sin. I want to tell you, if a Christian says, I don't have any struggle with sin, that Christian's telling lies. They're not being true to the scriptures or true to experience. I've never met one person who tells me, I have never sinned. I've never met one person who claims that he or she lives above all temptation and lives above all sin. I've never met one person who said to me, I've learned the secret, the full secret of a life of power and victory. That sin's not a problem to me. That that he or she doesn't sin. You see, every one of us must admit that we fight a daily battle with sin. You, if you're going to live a life of victory that's real in Christ, you must recognize the enemy within Paul's a realist. Paul knows the presence and power of the enemy within. Look at the text. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. Now, what does that mean? What does the word members mean? You see, you're already thinking of your body. And I want to tell you this morning, dadly, that your physical body is not the real problem. You see, that was the Gnostic heresy that had its roots in Colossae. The Gnostics came along and said, the body is evil. The body is sinful. You must punish your body if, if you want to be holy. A life of legalism, a life of asceticism, a life of monasticism, a life in the nunnery. You must deny legitimate comforts. You must deny yourself things that belong to the earthly life if you want to be holy. But I want to tell you this morning, listen to me carefully now, your bodily parts are not sinful in and of themselves. However, they can become the instruments of sin or, or the vehicles of sin. And what Paul is arguing here is don't allow your members of your body, don't allow them to be used for this purpose in dealing with sin. How can we deal with the sin that uses them for the purpose of sin? Think of the body, the brain, the eye, the tongue, the mind, the ears, the hand, the foot. They're not to be used as the servants of sin. Turn over there to Romans chapter 6. Look with me there. At Romans chapter 6 and verse 13, well, maybe verse 12, Romans 6 and verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of righteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. He says in verse 17, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Verse 18, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. You must deal with the sin that uses and works through your members of your body 
as instruments of sin. And that's what Paul's dealing with here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. He lists sins that we struggle with. Sins are really the enemy of the Christian. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. You get five things. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Five sensual and sexual sins. Now look at chapter 3, verse 8. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. There's five more. And they have to do with the attitude and the actions of the heart in human relationships. Human relationships at home. Wife, husband, parents, children. School. University. The workplace. Now, now, the Bible, as I've already told the children, is a wonderful book. And you know, as God's book, because God is the author and source of the Word of God, the Word of God deals with the subject of sensual and sexual sins in a very chaste and, and a very delicate fashion. Look at this first word, fornication. What is fornication? Fornication is unlawful sexual activity outside of the marriage bed. The word fornication is pernia, and it's wide enough to cover adultery, incest, homosexuality, polygamy. In other words, it's all unlawful sexual activity outside of marriage. From this word pernia, we get the English word pornography. The word porn has to do with sexual evils. Graphia has to do with pictures that are literal graphic displays of these sexual evils to put into the mind. So, so fornication is all kinds of sexual immoral lifestyle. Now, now hold on to that thought. Come to the next word, uncleanness. You see, uncleanness fills the heart and minds with the effect of fornication. The heart and mind become morally impure. It becomes defiled. And the individual who engages in fornication, that individual loses dignity. They lose their purity. They lose their honor. And I want to tell you it's hurtful. But it's also hateful in the sight of God. Listen to verse 6. For which things seek the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And we'll preach in that in due time. Notice the next thing. Inordinate affection. That has to do with lustful desires and lustful passions. You see, fornication, uncleanness. They're the, the, the outward deeds of the sensual, sexual list. But where does that spring from? It comes from the inside the human heart. The human heart is real and sinful. The heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. Over there in Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus said this in the verse 28. 
But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Remember the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And people imagine, well, if I don't engage in the physical act of adultery, I haven't broken the seventh commandment. But the Lord Jesus came along with authority and said, you've heard it said of old time, they shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, he has broken the commandment, not outwardly, but he's broken it inwardly in the heart. And the same is to do with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. You, you, could, you could have anger in your heart, be so enraged that you want to put someone to death. Even if you think it and feel it, you, you'll never actually physically do it. But, but this is what we call the spirituality of the law. And then we've got another uh, mention here in Colossians, another evil concupience. Evil lust. You see, there are lusts, desires that, that are natural to us. But, but there's such a thing as evil lusts, passions that are evil, lusts that are fed, lusts that are heard, lusts that are seen, that, that, that are evil in and of themselves. And then you've got this other word, covetousness. That's greed. In the moral sphere, a lust for things. How many have been overcome with a lust for people and lust for property and a lust for pounds? And we can illustrate that right down the line from the scriptures. See, that's the last commandment, thou shalt not covet. That's a breach of the tenth commandment. And the breach of the tenth, as Paul discovered, led to a breach of every other commandment. Lying, killing, stealing filthy idolatry and, and blasphemy. This kind of lifestyle, Paul's arguing, belongs to the ungodly. The true Christian is not living this kind of lifestyle. He formerly did, but not now, because he's now in Christ. And he's no longer living in his natural sphere. Now, I want to ask this this morning. Why mention this list of five things? Could I not just have skipped over this this morning and went to something else, something more pleasant, something more soothing, something more encouraging, something more comforting for you? But why did Paul mention it? I want you to think of that. Why is it in the Bible? You see, if we were to transport us back to first century life, we would discover first century life. Now, I want you to listen carefully. I want you to think of the mass of the ungodly in first century. Do you know what it was ruled by? It was ruled by a misuse of sex. Sex is created by God. It is good. It takes place in the context of marriage. Adam and Eve, remember what we read there in Genesis chapter 1 and 31, and God saw that everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Adam and Eve were naked. They were unashamed. They entered into a lifelong commitment and marriage to one another, and, 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 and in that context, it is good. But outside of the marriage bed, it's wrong, it's sinful, it's wicked, it's perverted. And in the ancient world, there was adultery, and incest and homosexuality and 
polygamy and bestiality, and it was all defiling, and it was all destructive. Now, why mention it? Because it was a first century problem. The ancient world was a cesspool of iniquity. The ancient world was very evil and wicked. In the ancient world, it was okay to engage in fornication before you were married with multiple partners. It was okay to be married and have one or more mistresses. It was okay for men to be with men. Romans chapter 1, verses 23 to 27. It was okay for men to be with boys. It was okay for women to be with women. You see, it was rife in the ancient world. It was okay to be intimate with your sister, your daughter, or your mother. And it was so bad that in the temple of Diana of Ephesus, in a religious sense, when men were coming to worship Diana as a goddess, men indulged in intimate carnal knowledge with women in the temple, and they were doing it as a way of worshipping Diana. And it was woven into the very fabric of the pagan world. And these people that were converted were coming out of that pagan world. And they had formerly lived such a lifestyle. And they were asking, how do I keep myself pure? I face a battle and a struggle with sin. How do I keep my heart and mind clean? And Paul is the answer. Set your affections and things above. Because you're in Christ now. Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Let me ask this question this morning. What destroyed the Roman Empire? It wasn't a foreign enemy. The destruction of the Roman Empire came from within. And at the heart of that destruction, listen to me carefully, was sensual, sexual immorality and it happened in the first century and I want to tell us today this kind of behavior is destroying human civilization and I have a word for today it is sexual immorality that's destroying our united kingdom the united kingdom government is promoting such a lifestyle think of the lifestyle of its members of parliament Think of the lifestyle that's been pushed upon the people. If I asked the question this morning, what can stop this immoral sexual lifestyle? New life in Christ. The institution of marriage. The duty and responsibility of mortifying there for your members. Because marriage remembers between one man and one woman. Committed to each other for life. I believe that the marriage bed is undefiled. But you think for a moment of this. If sex is confined to the marriage bed and it's safe and good, then you think of a huge reservoir and that reservoir is bound in with the walls of a dam. And that dam is safe. And that dam is ministering to human need. But you imagine a brief breach in that dam what happens the water begins to flow out and as it flows and bursts forth it gets stronger and stronger and it drowns all in its path it destroys all in its path but you see there's been a breach in the dam today the marriage institution has been destroyed by the government 
It's been invaded by a lifestyle of adultery and homosexuality and lesbianism and and incest. The dam has burst. And what has happened? Society has become fractured and broken. Marriage is no longer the norm. Cohabitation has become the norm. And women and children, oftentimes they become abused. And we'll throw into the mix the drugs and the drink culture. Someone has rightly said, the problem with today's society is that men and women are behaving like animals. People are damaged mentally. People are being damaged in their physical health. They're emotionally damaged. And there's no respect today for the Bible, for biblical standards, for moral standards. There's no respect for the police, parents, teachers, the courts. The the world seems to be falling apart. It's decaying. It's being destroyed. The UK government prides itself in diversity, equality, and hate laws. Do you know that the Crown Prosecution Service say that it's no longer appropriate to quote some verses from the Bible? We've just received a message today about that. Minorities are protected. But if you're decent, if you're God-fearing, if you're a Bible-believing person, whether a pastor or a preacher, they want to silence us. They threaten us. They threaten us with jail and, 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 and prosecution and fines. And of course, Pastor McConnell's case against Islam was just a test case. And if he had lost it, then there would have been further moves to silence the people of God. Let me tell you something as we move on. The sexual revolution happened in the 1960s, probably just before I was born. And one book that helped to change everything was a book written by D.H. Lawrence in 1928 called Lady Chatterley's Lover. And the Penguin Publications sent 12 copies to the Crown Prosecution Service. There was a court case. You see, up to that point, up to the 1960s, literature and theatres and movies and dramas, anything explicit by way of filthy things, they, they were banned, and rightly so. But Penguin sensed in 1960s things could become more open. They wanted to challenge the Obscene Publications Act. And they attempted to publish this book and sent it to the Crown Prosecution Service, knowing that it would get a court reaction. And then they wanted the judge to rule on whether this law should be repealed. And they used the media, they used the television, there was great interest. Do you know that the Church of England bishops came out and said it would do no harm if Lady Chatterley's lover was published? And they won their case and they got the right to publish. First day, 200,000 copies were published. The first year, two million copies in the United Kingdom, more than what was sold by way of the scriptures that year. 1969, then the law of outlawing homosexual lifestyle was repealed. And the sexual revolution has taken full pace. 
and brought in a whole range of libertarianism. Colossians 3 and 5, I want to tell you, is relevant. It's up to date. The Bible is sound. Because here's life in the 2022 situation. And what does Paul say? Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupience, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Recognize the enemy within very quickly. Recognize the strategy of the word. Notice the word mortify there for your members which are upon the earth. The word mortify, here's the, the second command. In light of the first command in Christ, set your affections and things above. In light of this command, obey the second command. Mortify there for your members which are upon. The word mortify means to put to death. And as I've tried to explain, don't allow your members to be used to be the vehicles of sin. Remember what we read there in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. Having eyes full of idolatry and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Believers on earth Their state is now perfect. They're legally justified in Christ. The old life is dead. But in relation to the heart outworking of that, their, their state and condition is not fully and completely reconciled. It is in harmony to agree, but now only in principle. The process of progressive sanctification has to take place. And we could mention example after example, and I'm not going to do it this morning. We could mention Joseph and his dealings with Potiphar's wife and her dealings with Joseph. I believe she looked in that young man. I believe that she had lust in her heart. I, I believe that she had uh, 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 corruption and tension for Joseph. Uh, and he fled and suffered the consequences. Think of David with Bathsheba. Different set of circumstances. He looked in her as she was bathing. He inquired about her. He sent for her. He, he introduced himself to her. He was the king. He got alone with her and he took her and it all started with a look. Inordinate affection. Evil concupiscence. Eye gate kicked in. And the heart was affected. And then he, he willingly engaged. Doesn't the advertising agency use loads of sensual images through Eyegate to engage the mind and the heart to sell their magazines? Think of the internet, and it's a great tool, and we thank God for it. But it also can be a great tool for evil. And there's dreadful, defiling images on the internet at the click of a mouse. And I'm not saying we want to watch them. I'm not saying we should fill our hearts and minds with them. Corrupt men. Will do that. But it will have a horrible effect. It will lead to broken lives, broken homes. Recognize the strategy of the word mortify, therefore, your members. And I want you to notice this recognize the reality of this wickedness. Let me say in closing if you don't kill sin, 
sin will kill you. The power of sin to dominate the heart and mind is a real power. You think of the power of sin in Judas. He had a lust for money, and that lust for money killed him. You think of David and his lust for a woman and the impact that it had in his home and on his throne for the rest of his days. You think of Demas having a lust for this present evil world, and he left Christ in the gospel. Suppose you're out for a walk. Say you're over at Hillsborough Forest Park, and you see a deadly snake in your path, and that snake is coiled. And that that snake is about to bite you. And one bite will send the poison into your bloodstream. And you could die from that snake. Well, suppose you had a sword. Suppose you had a matchet with you. What would you do? Well, you would strike first. You would want to cut off the head of that snake. Or or think of two gunfighters in an old western. Think of true grit. The fastest to draw, kill the other person. No hesitation. You see, no one has to sin. You're not forced to sin. You have to make it a choice. You're enticed. Yes, you're, you're tempted. You're beguiled. But temptation invites your consent. Remember what we read in James chapter 1 and in the uh, verse 15. James 1 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. You see, sin must have your consent. There must be consent of your will. And sin doesn't come like a deadly snake. It comes like an old friend. It comes alongside you, putting its arm around you. How are you? Whispering sweet things into your ear. That's the way the devil worked with Eve. And what's the answer? Well, we finish with this thought. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. You see, apart from Christ, apart from the power of the blood and the fullness of grace, apart from the new birth, listen to me carefully as I finish. There's no power in all the universe that can deal with these sins. Neither these sensual, sexual sins or the attitudes and, and, and actions of the heart and mind. Only the blood of Christ. And it's only in Christ that power can be broken and brought to heal. Victory over sin, is it real? Or is it a ruse? It's real for all who are in Christ. It was a first century problem. And Paul urged his people, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Recognize the wickedness. Realize the strategy of the word. And remember you and I have an enemy within that's out to destroy us.